One of my favorite authors in Christendom is by a man named C.S. Lewis. And if you've not read his books, then maybe you've seen some of the movies made out of his books, especially some of his fiction books called uh, The Chronicles of Narnia. But Lewis wrote several um, by, you know, uh, non-fiction, um, I think of the book Mere Christianity, which was probably in the historical view of Christendom. It is in the top, I would say, 100 books that has influenced Christendom, um, was written by this guy named C.S. Lewis, who also wrote about a line in a wardrobe. Um, it's crazy to think, but also one of his um, most famous works was this book right here. It's called The Screwtape Letters, and this is a uh, taking the theology of demons and the devil and putting it into a fiction form so that's easy to read. It's, it's, it's a great read. I read it this week. It doesn't take very long to, to read that. Um, I would encourage you to do so. But I want to start out our time this morning uh, reading a quote from the preface of this book. After writing the book, people loved it, but they were really questioning Lewis and asked him the question, does he really believe in the devil? They thought that this was just crazy, ludicrous, great story, but do you really believe in this? And this was Lewis's response. Now, if you believe by the devil, you mean... Uh, a power opposite to God and like God, self-existent from all eternity, the answer is certainly no. There is no uncreated being except God. God has no opposite. No being could, no being could attain a perfect badness opposite to the perfect goodness of God. For when you have taken away every kind of good, intelligence, will, memory, energy, and existence itself, there would be none of him left. The proper question is whether I believe in devils. I do. That is to say, I believe in angels. And I believe that, that some of these, by the abuse of their free will, have become enemies to God and to us. These we may call devils. They do not differ in nature from good angels, but their nature is depraved. Devil is the opposite of angel, only as a bad man is the opposite of a good man. Satan, the leader or dictator of devils, is the opposite, not of God, but of Michael, the angel. See, whenever I say things or we read a passage in regards um, to the devil <laughs> or demons, a lot of pictures probably come to our mind that are probably more influenced by Hollywood than they really are the Scripture. We kind of get this yin-yang motif that, you know, you've got God and you've got Jesus, you've got the Holy Spirit, and its exact opposite and perfect equal is Satan. Usually when we start talking about these types of passages or mentioning of these words, there are two types of people in the room. You're the type of person who doesn't think much about Satan or demons or evil. Or you're the type of person that believes everything has a demon in it. And that's where we really wrestle with today. As one of the pastors um, who I listened to a long time ago, I heard him say this. He's like, we've got to be careful um, to, to think too much of or to think too less of or too little about demons. 
Um, brothers and sisters, non-believers, if you're in this room, you must understand that there is a supernatural realm. There's a spiritual realm that's taking place that we cannot see. Sometimes God will give us glimpses into that and definitely does through his word. But that is very important for us to understand that there are kind of two parallel kingdoms, as we've mentioned um, several times in talking through the book of Matthew in this sermon series, King and Kingdom. But there's not only this cultural that is a city, it's a kingdom. There's also the Christian culture that is also running alongside of that. But there is also a supernatural um, kingdom and situation that is taking place. When we look at this passage, Jesus comes across the Sea of Galilee. There's a storm. He calms that storm and he ends up on the other side where he is meaning to go and he is confronted by two demons according to the book of Matthew. Now, when we say the word demon, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Horns, pitchfork, red unitard, all right? Whatever it is, you think of this like ghastly creature, this kind of like gnarly thing with long fingernails and like speaks in this like kind of, um, you know, uh, this nasty voice or deep voice or, or looks like the, the creature um, in Gollum inside of Lord of the Rings. But if we were really to look at it from a biblical perspective, I mean, I think it's, it's probably safe to say that demons are probably beautiful creatures. They're probably beautiful. If we were to see them, we would probably even be amazed by them. Even inside of Christendom right now, there is a movement um, where people essentially worship angels. They call upon angels. They worship angels. I mean, some really crazy, freaky stuff going out there. And most of the time, they always appear as beacons of light. People worship them, and yet they're demons. They're demonic. According to Wayne Grudem, demons are evil angels who sinned against God and are now continually doing the work of evil in the world. They can influence us. They can tempt us. They can cause sickness, sometimes even murder, and on rare occasions can possess people. Where do demons come from? Where do these evil angels come from? Well, there are glimpses of this in, uh, if you take notes, in Isaiah chapter 14, in Ezekiel chapter 28, in Revelation chapter 12, but specifically in 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4, it says, For if God did not spare angels when they sin, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. In Jude 1.6, it says, And the angels did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains until gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day. It's believed by most um, biblical scholars that when Satan um, committed treason against God, when Satan wanted to be God, that, that he was able to convince a, a third or so of, of the angels to go with him, to rebel against God with him, thus leaving demons or evil angels. 
In chapter 8, we have seen Jesus flex his, his power. We have seen him flex his authority over physical illness, over nature. And now we're going to see Jesus do something supernatural. He's going to reveal to his disciples who are following alongside of him his power, his authority, his sovereignty over the supernatural. See, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this episode. They kind of all want us to see these stories unfold before us. Gadara, these are the Gardarenes, and the city of Garda is, is about about six miles off the coast of the Sea of Galilee where we left off last week. It's located on a summit on a, on a mountain um, off the Sea of Galilee and it is, a, it is a Roman capital of that providence and it's a Gentile city. Jesus is among the Gentiles. If you're not a Jew in this room or in the world, then you are considered to be a Gentile. And so after calming the, this violent storm, Jesus and his followers get in their boats, they get off, they walk for a little while, and they're greeted, according to Matthew, by two demon-possessed men. Now, we'll go ahead and tell you, if you're looking at the passages that we've given to you, that Mark and Luke only mention one possessed man where Matthew mentions two. Uh, most scholars, I looked it up because I'm curious. I'm like, well, is this two different episodes? Um, what's, what's happening here? Um, it's believed by most scholars and what they tell us is that since Jesus is going to have a conversation with one of the men that the authors decided to, to really focus on that man, but Matthew tells us that there were actually two demon-possessed men there. It appears as one of them was probably the leader, and so that's why Jesus is having conversations with this gentleman. We can tell from these passages um, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that the, we are told that these men that meet Jesus and the disciples, that they lived among the tombs. And according to Ezekiel chapter 39, to, to live or to dwell or even touch on certain occasions, these tombs would have made you unclean. So these men are separate from society. They're not living in a house. These men are, are living at the graveyard. I don't know about you, but I mean, I'm pushing 40. And you probably still won't catch me walking in the middle of the night in the graveyard. Like, I know they're dead. Like, I, know, I don't believe in ghosts. I don't believe anybody's going to jump back. And, but I'm not playing spotlight or hide and seek in the graveyard with you. Okay? Call me a girl. That's fine. We can fight after church today. But that, that's not going to happen. I mean, I still get spooked in my house when the, the house settles and creaks. I'm like, who's in my house? Right? Right? Okay. Thanks for the confessional time just for me this morning. All right? So these dudes, they're... They're living amongst dead folk. They're living amongst bones. This is their dwelling place. Um, the, the, the Bible tells us that this, this possession, this demon possession, made them physically powerful. The Bible tells us in these passages that they were unable to be shackled or whenever they were chained and shackled that they had superhuman strength that they were able to, to destroy chains that were placed upon them and the shackles upon them. No one could subdue these men. And I've only been in one situation that I know of where supposedly a person was demon-possessed and and I, I still don't know what was going on. 
Um, but I, I know that it, it took like five or six grown men to hold a woman down as she spoke and all kinds of stuff. It was a really interesting experience in my life. We also learned this, that day and night they cried out and cut themselves with stones. These men and the possession of the demons within them caused them to be self-destructive. It caused them to agonize and inflicted pain. Uh, imagine day and night coming from cemetery, right off here on Cemetery Rome, that there was this moaning and agonizing men crying out in pain, acting like animals. In Luke 8.27, it also tells us that these men were naked. I mean, nothing says, like, welcome to Bowling Green than being greeted by two naked dudes acting like animals. And that's the scene that we see here, right? Jesus gets out of the boat. We're going to this city. I'm trying to get, oh, Jesus, again, remember what we learned last week. Why is Jesus trying to get away? Why is Jesus on the boat in the first place? Why does he go across the street? He is trying to get away from people. He's trying to get away from the crowd, steps out, walks a little bit, two naked dudes yelling and screaming at you. Now, all joking aside, this is a very tragic, tragic scene. Put yourself in the position of those men for a moment. These men are sons. They are sons. They're possibly brothers. They're maybe uncles. They could be husbands. They could be fathers. See, the, the moral compass that is inside of human nature, it, it's gone, leaving these men to their depravity and control of these demons. Instead of a quick death, these men are experiencing a slow, painful, suffering-filled, relational, and physical death. They had become more like animals than humans. I heard a pastor say one time that he had this guy, he was preaching, it was in a church plant. Um, I think a year or so in, they were dealing with a lot of demonic people trying to hurt them. Jacob, you need to pay attention to this if you're in a church plant. <laughs> Hope this doesn't happen today. It's going to get really interesting. He said he was up preaching, he was sharing the gospel, and all of a sudden a man jumped up. He was a first-time guest, jumped up out of the crowd, started rebuking, started coming toward the pastor was saying all kinds of craziness, uh, yelling and screaming at the pastor. And then all of a sudden, the, the pastor just grabbed the Bible, started reading out of 1 John, and that man took running off down the road. What was interesting is that man came with a friend. And after church was over, they went and asked this man, they were like, hey man, what's up with your friend? And the guy was like, I have no idea. That man has never acted like that. That is completely out of his nature and out of his character. So after the service, the pastors and their friend went looking for the guy to try to help him. And when they found the guy, he was a few blocks down the road, like sitting down, like eating, and had no recollection of what had happened. He was like, what do you mean I'm saying this? What do you mean I just, what happened? I did what? Imagine for that moment that you are trapped inside of that body. You are uncontrollable. You've lost everything. You're in the shame of nakedness. Your, your body is scarred from you cutting yourself with stones, trying in some way to release pain. 
and that's these men. As one commentator wrote, it looks as if the goal of the demons is to erase the image of God in these men. Their misery is a foretaste of hell itself. Jesus in the, 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 the Gospel of Mark and, and in Luke, um, he specifically has a conversation and Jesus asked this demon, possessed man, what his demon's name was. And simply the, the demon inside of the man responded, legion, because there are many. There were so many demons inside of this man that, that it was multitudes. Well, to put that in perspective, a Roman legion was equal to 6,000 troops. And this man is saying, I'm, the demons inside of him, there are so many of us that call us legion. Remember, Jesus is not alone in this story. Who's around him? Well, the Bible told us earlier in, in, in chapter 8 that a group of other disciples, and we see through the other Gospels that there were several boats that had traveled with Jesus across this lake. And so Jesus is, is standing there with a bunch of Jewish men looking at two naked, demon-possessed men. And Jesus begins to have this conversation. So imagine just for a moment, let's put ourselves in the place of one of those disciples. You've been traveling with Jesus um, all through the night. You've seen him miraculously calm this storm. You don't know Jesus very good. You haven't been around him very long. And all of a sudden you find yourself in Gentile territory. You're a Jew. You hate, hate Gentiles. You literally think that they're dogs. Imagine for a moment that you were standing there with Jesus. These two men come out yelling, screaming, speaking in all sorts of language. They're demon-possessed. They're saying their name is Legion. All of these things are happening. If I'm that guy, I'm telling Jesus, let's get back in the boat. Let's get back in the boat, Jesus. That, that healing of the sick people, that, that was cool. That way you pulled that Chris Allen thing on the weather last night. I, like, I still don't know how you did that. Like, I'm still trying to figure out how you did the, the controlling of the weather thing on the storm happening last night. That, that was awesome. That was cool. But demons? Like, okay, the cost of discipleship, I'm out. Especially Gentile demons can't stand these people I guess discipleship is is not for me but the disciples these people standing around Jesus watching this interaction taking place Jesus doesn't get back in the boat Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen when, he, when he's on the boat. He knows that the storm is going to come. And, and he knows that as soon as he steps foot on side of this, this shoreline and begins to walk toward this city, that he is going to encounter these men. It was on purpose. It was to reveal something more about his true identity and something, other, and something else to these followers of his. Upon meeting these possessed men the bible tells us does it not and when he came to the other side to the country of the gadarenes two demon possessed men met him coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way and behold they cried out what have you to do with us O son of god 
have you come here to torment us before our time? Inside of Mark and Luke, the Bible tells us that whenever they come running up on Jesus and recognize that it is Jesus, the Son of God, that they literally begin to bow at his feet. These demon-possessed men, they are, they, are, they are becoming fearful. But what are they fearful of? They're fearful of Jesus. They're fearful of this man whom they have just met. They recognize who he is. Like a bunch of cockroaches, when the light comes on, they begin to, to scurry, and they're, they're freaking out at the power and the magnitude of God in the flesh in their presence. Matthew says to this, that the demons say, what have you to do with us, son of God? Have you come to torment us before time? In Mark and Luke, it says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I, I compel you, I do you, to God by God do not torment me I beg you do not torment me these demons in the sight of Jesus begin to freak out they are fearful but why are they fearful for their belief they know who he is they immediately bow to his feet they reluctantly they worship him they submit to him they know him as god see they are do they're doing what the followers aren't even doing yet they recognize him for his true identity the the followers of jesus that are around here are still extremely skeptical of what's taking place in the true identity of Jesus. Man, I want us for a moment to contemplate the weight of that statement. Jesus, the Son of God. See, Satan and the demons, they know their destiny. They know that there's no way out. Though, though God has granted us and humanity saving grace through, to Je through Jesus, when these angels sinned against God, he has offered them and will not offer them any saving mercy and grace. See, the, the demons, they beg Jesus, they plead with Jesus, they negotiate with Jesus not to send them to hell immediately, but where they will be tormented forever. They begin to ask, man, is there anything? Don't, don't send me to that final place where your wrath will be poured upon me so the bible tells us there in these passages that there's some pigs nearby and they simply ask you know don't don't cast us into hell at least cast us into these pigs in the gospel of mark it tells us that there were two thousand pigs kind of eating on this pasture and Jesus simply tells these demons to go, and the demons left the men and entered into these pigs. And, and the possession of the pigs was so intense, it's so messed with those pigs, that literally they stampeded off the bank and down into the lake to their death. And what a scene. For the Jews, they have met unclean men. 
in an unclean land. It's believed by most scholarship that because of the use of pigs, Jews were not around, around, allowed to be around pigs. They couldn't touch them, couldn't eat them, all those sorts of things. They were considered to be unclean, so it, it would make them unclean. And so that's another um, one of the evidences of this possibly or believed to being a Gentile land in a Gentile setting was all of the pigs. Now, there are a lot of questions that people want to ask. Like, like my nephew did one time, um, after hearing this story for the first time. I feel really bad for those pigs. And there are people that wonder and they'll start asking questions like, can animals be possessed by pigs? Well, let me say this. Let me clarify something really quickly. I, I believe that demon possession um, demon influence is very common. Demon possession is extremely, extremely rare. Okay? And so I, I think that we can conclude down that ladder that, that the possession of an animal is even more rare, and the only instance that we have of it is, is probably Satan and the serpent and this setting right here. And what do the pigs immediately do? die. All right? So if you go out here and get killed by a bear today and you're walking around, it's his home. It's like getting in the ocean and being mad at a shark for getting bit. Guess what? That's where he lives. That doesn't mean that that shark is demon-possessed or that bear is demon-possessed because they kill you. Okay? But this is, this is where in our culture and society and especially in religions in the world we'll take small pictures and glimpses that we see inside of Scripture and build whole theologies around them causing mass confusion in people. If you go to Africa, brothers and sisters in Haiti that I've met, I mean major issues because this has been an immersed into their lives in believing these things. Okay? So we have to be very careful in looking at those different things. In verse 33, it says, The herdsmen fled, and, and going to the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. I would say for Matthew that this is probably one of the major themes and points of this section in his story. is how the townspeople respond. See, after witnessing the pigs um, and, and they were watching them run off this cliff, I mean, could you imagine the stampede of, uh, have you ever been around a pig? All right, I'm not talking about a pot-bellied pig. I'm talking about a big, nasty, seven, you know, several hundred pound pig. With tusk, they, they, they can grow tusk, all right? Running off a cliff to their death into a lake. And so the herdsmen, they're, they're probably watching this herds for other people. They don't own the pigs. They're just watching. They're shepherding these pigs. This happens, and they freak out. And what do they do? They run to the city. They're telling everybody, hey, just want you to know there's this guy named Jesus. He's at the bank. There were the two demon-possessed naked dudes hanging out at the tombs. He cast the demons out of them. The, the, the demons went into the pigs, and they've run off a cliff. And what do the people do? They run out to see this Jesus. And notice, though, when the whole, and the Bible says the, into the city, they, that the whole city, all of the city, 
came to meet Jesus. And when they heard the story and they saw what happened, what did they do? They begged Jesus to leave. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I think that that's a pretty surprising turn of events. They begged Jesus to leave. If you had two crazy, naked, demon-possessed men living underneath the sign of your neighborhood, and every day, they're out there, ah, I mean, it's just picture this, I, I get, I like to read in, I'm a, you know, I got my degree in uh, semiotics. that means that we exegete images. I just imagine these two burly, hairy, you know, ah, yelling, slobbering, you know, they probably laugh, they're like, do you see that? They go back in the tomb and they're like laughing, they're like, hey, we got them, all right? But they're like yelling, screaming, gnarly, just ah, at your neighborhood sign, right? Sutherland Farms, ah, next to the sign. Like, you want to bring people to your cookout at your house? And, and you're like, hey, pay no attention to the naked dudes slobbering on the window. Right? I mean, if that happens at Ivy Farms, where I live, I mean, we're rejoicing, are we not, Larry? I mean, we're pretty happy. We're like, Bobby finally put some clothes on, <laughs> right? That's my neighbor. <laughs> so we, 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 we're like rejoicing. We're, we're happy. Think about it, though. These are two men's lives who have been wrecked, completely destroyed by sin and by Satan and depravity inside of our lives. You, you would think that these people would be following on their feet, worshiping this man named Jesus who has transformed and rescued these two men's lives. You'd think they'd be celebrating this. You'd think they'd go out there to, to meet these men and to carry them back to the city and give Jesus the keys to the city. Think about this. When you come into this place, this is what you're greeted with. But those who are lost are now found and there should be this celebration. And yet that is not what took place. How do they respond? Please leave. Beg Jesus to leave. Why? Because of fear. Because of fear, brothers and sisters. That is why. See, the demons fear Jesus because they know who he is. These town people fear Jesus because of who he may be. And how, if, if Jesus is truly the Son of God, if Jesus is the Messiah, then they are extremely fearful of what they may lose. They're fearful of the gospel. They're fearful of the cost of following Jesus. See, see the, the people held the pigs at more value than the people. See, their possessions, their wants, their desires, their comfort, their money, their closets, their cars, their food, they were more concerned about those things than they were about the transformation of these men's lives. Fear. Comfort. Security. Is more important to many of us than following Jesus. 
Over and over, we see in the Gospels that Jesus compels people that you need to count the cost of what it means to follow me. And this is the situation that's taking place here in this moment as these townspeople come out, these Gentile people, and they want nothing to do with Jesus. If my memory is correct, I believe that this is one of the only times that Jesus really engages the Gentiles. But I believe that Jesus is foreshadowing something that he's going to do in the book of Acts. And he was teaching those group of Jews that not only do I have control over the Jews, not only do I have control over the weather, not only do I have control over the demonic and evil and Satan, but I also have control on the lost Gentile. And he's going to fulfill that through the church. Let's continue. The transformed men. How did they respond? It says in Mark chapter 5 verses 1 through 21. We're going to look at verse 14 through 20. It said the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon possessed man. The, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them that what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. And he was getting into the boat. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him to say, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. See, we see this constant comparing and contrasting inside of the, the Gospel of Matthew. And, and Matthew in his writing and then the story, he does it once again. We see the response of the townspeople is rejection of Jesus, even after witnessing this amazing miracle. And yet we see this man or these men, I would say, that have been transformed by Jesus responding in a completely different way. The Bible tells us that when Jesus rebuked the storm, that there was this great calm that came and in a very similar way Jesus calmed the grief caused by sickness Jesus has calmed the panic caused by this natural world inside of storms and now Jesus is calmed the agony caused by sin and Satan brothers and sisters this is an enormous picture of the gospel we see inside these very few verses a, a beautiful picture of the gospel. We see a man who had demons, and now the demons have gone from the man. We, we see men who had no clothes, and now they're clothed. We see men that, that did not live in a house but in tombs, and yet Jesus tells them to go where? To return home. He falls down and he's shouting he's he's angry at Jesus but after being delivered the Bible tells us here that he is sitting at the feet of Jesus it's a totally different picture one is of defeat the other one as friend 
The demon seized him and caused him to be out of his control of his mind and, and his body. And yet the Bible tells us here that now after meeting Jesus and being delivered of these demons, that he is in his right mind. Simply put, brothers and sisters, the gospel in a very simple, compact form is this. This is the, the, the constant cycle. You are lost, you are saved, and you are sent. What does the man do? As, as soon as he is transformed, he is begging to follow Jesus. This man, out of all of those hundreds of people, or I don't know if there were hundreds, the numbers of people that were with Jesus from the other side of the lake that day, they're Jewish people. They've been seeing Jesus do all of these sorts of things, and yet they do not know Jesus like this formerly demon-possessed men. Jesus is calling people to follow him. They're really contemplating, and yet for this man, he immediately knows that Jesus has changed him. Therefore, Jesus, let me go with you. Let me follow you. And what does Jesus do? He tells him he can't. But what, Jesus doesn't just leave him at that, though. What does he tell him? He says, man, go to your friends. Go to your family. Go home. Could you imagine on that day if he was a daddy and there were small kids in that house and a wife who, who did not any longer know her husband but only had a little foretaste of memories of the man that he used to be before he was demon-possessed. And on that glorious day in his homecoming, when he goes home and he knocks on that door and walks through that threshold and he is no longer demon-possessed, what a picture of reconciliation. What a picture of ministry that is happening inside of this man's life. Jesus always saves people, lost people, but brothers and sisters, we must understand this. Jesus always sends them. Always. Every time. And yet there are many people in American Christianity who are claiming to have a follower of Jesus and yet are not living in mission. We're not living in mission. We're not engaging in mission. And I'm not talking about just getting on an airplane and flying to Niger. I'm, I'm talking about like where you work, in your neighborhood. You care more about your comfort and security and about the loss that it will cause you in following Jesus than it, what it will mean to gain Jesus inside of his mission. This is the recurring process over and over and over. You were lost, you were saved, and now you are sent. Do not claim to be a follower of Jesus and not live in the mission. Because here's the deal. You're either lost or you're majorly disobedient. And God isn't pleased with either of those in our lives. See, when you encounter the true saving power of Jesus, he transforms your life. He is your all in all. There is none greater. You cannot have a saving encounter with Jesus and not be the same. We must be careful, brothers and sisters, in our arrogance when reading this story and believing we are better than the demon-possessed man. Please listen to me. Focus. We are the demon-possessed man in this story. So we have this identity crisis and thinking, man, well, at least I'm not demon-possessed. At least I don't have these critters live inside of me controlling my actions. 
And yes, brothers and sisters, I understand that. Maybe that is the case. Maybe you're not demon-possessed, but there is a major connection between a lost person and the demon-possessed. Guess what it is? They are both lost. They are both lost and undone without Jesus. Apart from Jesus, we are much more like this demon-possessed man than we are Christ. Demon or not, if you're lost, then according to the book of Ephesians, you are dead in your trespasses, you are following Satan, you are children of disobedience and children of wrath. Like the demon-possessed man, we are wretched in our sin. We are rebellious toward God. We are a sinner. We are a lost person. We, we, we will never in our own ability repent and turn to Jesus. The men, and the men who are demon-possessed do not run up to Jesus and ask to be saved. And yet, we must realize that apart from grace that you and I hate God, that we are angry at God, that we are not repented, that, that even more that we are great, great in being deceived and believing that we are absolutely okay. Brothers and sisters, without God, intervening in our lives we will never repent we must get this okay faith is gifted to you which causes repentance your repentance does not lead to faith this is a mighty sovereign act of our God. God is at work. It is a picture not only of these men's story, but it is a picture of my story. It is a picture of your story that, that we, apart from Jesus, could not deliver ourselves. We could not rescue ourselves. We could not find victory for ourselves. And yet God, by his grace, by his mercy, by his patience with you by his patience with me compels us with his kindness and his love as a, as a kind father a patient daddy he he wills a person he changes a person he takes them from death into life he takes them from the tombs to a new home but he doesn't leave them there he also compels them he commands them he commissions them he commands us to go and to share the good news of what Jesus has done inside of our lives. You can do nothing this morning to change the color of your own skin, just like the leper cannot change his spots. Yet God, who is rich in his mercy, Jesus, who is the, the physical form of God himself through the person of Jesus by the work and the power of the Holy Spirit, enables a goat to become a sheep. And for the spiritually dead, to be given a resurrected life. Jesus once again illustrates his power. This time his power and his authority over the supernatural. Specifically, sin and Satan and his demons. Jesus, if he has the power to cast out sin, therefore has the power to rid us of sin. Brothers and sisters, we must understand when we talk, talk about what happened in Genesis, don't we talk about Adam and Eve? They spiritually died. Jesus did not just come to heal you of a cold and cancer. There's a greater issue. Jesus did not come to give us both an ease of life 
in security and money. There's a greater issue. That issue is a spiritual one. We can walk around here like the, the, the walking dead, believing that all is good and give perception that all is good and yet be far from God. And so when God sends Jesus, when he comes in the flesh, he must do something about the spiritual realm, the spiritual problem that is taking place. And Jesus once again illustrates this, forecasting the cross and the resurrection. The followers of Jesus they witnessed what only God can do. Heal, control, judge people, and transform people's lives. For a long time inside of Christian history, it's called the, that Jesus is our Christus Victor. It's Latin. It means Christ the victory. This morning, you need to be encouraged. In the midst of your heartache, in the midst of your turmoil, in the midst of whatever physical issues that are taking place inside of your personal existence, whether that's financial or relational or parenting or in, in your husband and wife or an issue in some sort of relationship or, or an illness, a sickness, whatever those things is, is that Jesus Christ is our victory. He is our victory. He has authority over those things. And once again, he's foreshadowing our eternal home that is to come where there will be no sickness. There will be no threat of tornado or hurricane or physical illness. And there will be no threat of sin and Satan. It has been delivered. His name is Jesus. He has rescued us. He is our victory. We must only preach ourselves in the midst of personal defeat, the true gospel. And that is that Christ is our all in all he is our victory brothers and sisters do not forget it because it is so easy to do so easy for us let us not forget in first john chapter 3 verse 8 says this whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning the reason the son of god appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. See, brothers and sisters, I believe that when, when God cast Satan to this earth, that it was not without a chain. And on the day of his resurrecting, I want you to know, I believe that he, he pulled that chain even tighter. And one day, that chain will be eternally binding to evil. So we must ask ourselves this morning, what is our response to Jesus' power over the supernatural? Will you proclaim? Or will you reject? Will you be like the transformed men? Or will we be like the townspeople? Brothers and sisters, let me ask you a serious question this morning. Do you have intellectual adherence to Jesus? Or do you have allegiance to Jesus? Do you have intellectual adherence? Or do you have allegiance? If Jesus is God, then he is God. If he is king, he is king. 
And he has called us to live a life being sent, proclaiming that message. May we reject responding like the townspeople. May we long to live daily like the formerly demon-possessed men. Let's pray.